I'm Alon Ben Mir, and welcome to another episode on the issues. I'm honored to have a special guest for today's episode, Pierre Bimont. During his 38 years diplomatic career with the French Foreign Service, he served as the first Executive Secretary General of the European External Action Service, Ambassador to the United States, and Ambassador to the European Union. Mr. Vimont was appointed as the Chief of Staff of three former French Foreign Ministers. He holds the title Ambassador of France, a dignity bestowed for life to only a few French career diplomats. More recently, he served as the Special Envoy for the French Initiative for the Middle East Peace Conference and is Senior Fellow at Carnegie Europe. In this extra-long episode, we discuss a variety of issues concerning the United States and the European Union, the possibility of a solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the ending of the civil war in Syria, the war in Yemen, and the withdrawal of the United States from the Iran deal and its implications. I hope you will enjoy this special episode with such an esteemed and honored guest. <laughs> Again, I want to thank you to begin with, really, no, 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 for no. taking the time. So anyway, what I, so this is what I wanted to talk, these four subjects, <laughs> because your input is really, really very, very unique, and I'd love to hear it, about what the, the, the Balkans and the prospect of accession of some of the Balkan states to the, to the EU. Now, given, given the situation today in the, in the European Union, in the wake of Britain, uh, um, Brexit, and this, uh, to, to extend the turmoil that has been caused, you, you, you don't feel that the EU is ready right now to proceed expeditiously or faster in the process of accession some of the Balkan countries. Mm-hmm. No, I think you're right. I don't think we're ready for that. You, you remember that when uh, the current uh, president of the European Count, uh, Commission came in, uh, Jean-Claude Juncker. He said that during his term of office, his five years of office, there will be no uh, new uh, enlargement. Uh, I don't know what the next <laughs> president of yeah. the European Commission will say, but I wouldn't be surprised if he would say something of the same kind. Uh, because we think, first of all, on our current agenda, uh, we have still many issues to deal with. Uh, the consolidation of the Eurozone, the whole migration issue, um, to think more about the future of the European Union, how to reorganize ourselves, uh, the whole issue of the rule of law in Poland mm-hmm. and Hungary. Mm-hmm. So I think everyone agrees that those enlargement perspectives with regard to the West Balkans uh, are still there. Uh, we want to allow this country to uh, become member of the European Union, but it's a question of deadline, it's a question of timing. And we think that if we go too quickly and would allow this country or some of these, those that would be ready uh, to come in too quickly, then we would have a lot of problem in our own uh, current yeah. um, uh, European Union. 
uh, as you know, in some of these um, European um, member states, uh, there is a need for a referendum. You, um, yes, some yes. others can go yes. through that parliament, but in many uh, of the European Union member states, there is a need for a referendum, and the yes. risk is that you could lose that referendum. Yeah. Would you say, Pierre, that uh, that the enlargement of the EU was too fast to begin with? And as a result of that, the EU is experiencing some of these difficulties that we are experiencing today. With, with hindsight, uh, this is uh, uh, the general agreement that maybe we have gone too fast or brought too many countries at the same time into yeah. the European Union. But if you look at it from where we were at the time, uh, you know, the end of the Berlin Wall, the end yeah, of the yeah. Soviet Union camp, there was this urgency to bring all a, these countries yeah, abroad. Yeah. And look at it from an economical, economic perspective, this was a success. We managed in a very few years to bring back all these countries to the uh, uh, free market economy, to consolidate their economy and their political uh, position. Uh, and that was uh, really one of the major achievements of the European Union. So today to go back and to say it was a mistake, we shouldn't have allowed them in, as I can hear not only in France, but also in Germany, where there is a lot of uh, concern and even complaint about uh, the enlargement. I think this is, this is to some extent, in my opinion, uh, the wrong perception and the wrong judgment. I think we were right in getting them in. Um, I think we all made mistakes in keeping this sort of division between the West and the East of the European Union. We haven't reached out from the West side. We haven't reached out enough to the new East uh, and Central European partners. And they, on their side, Central and East European countries, have remained somewhat aloof, far away, mm -hmm. distance, yeah. Yeah. Uh, being very critical, not bringing their own input in the construction of the European project. I think this is where we need to work more together right. to try to bridge the gap that is still there. Right. So, but as, along with what you've said, um, in hindsight, they felt, well, maybe we have moved too fast. But that nevertheless does influence today's decision of the EU. Who else to allow access? That is slowing the process. Wouldn't you say it came as a result of the fact that some think it was enlarged too, too fast? Yeah. <clears throat> you have to make a distinction there between those countries, namely the West Balkan countries, to which we have committed ourselves. Uh, uh, you know, all the other members of the European Union have said you have a right and a vocation to become a member, and this was agreed. So the principle is there, that I it see, can become. Yeah. With the other uh, new uh, candidates for membership, namely uh, Georgia, Moldova and Ukraine, there, for the time being, we haven't exactly. made a firm commitment. Right. Uh, but in both cases, I think what we're saying is that we need more time because, first of all, we need to put our own house in order. I think that's right. really the message. Uh, we want to bring you closer to us and then one day to get you on board. But for the time being, we have our own problems right. and you must allow us some more time uh, to put the house in order and then right. we will come back to you. I think that's really what we're trying to push as the yeah. kind of narrative. Huh? Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I want to mention a couple of countries that, uh, you know, one is we, we mentioned before, Serbia, and the other one is Turkey, and the, 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 the and Macedonia, to the extent to which you move probably closer mm -hmm. to Macedonia. Do you agree with that? In terms of Macedonia certainly, if they manage to get a final agreement on the change of the name of, of the, the country, name, yeah, well, because that uh, was the real yeah. uh, stumbling block. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So let, I want to just mm -hmm. ask you about Turkey. From my perspective, I don't think Turkey has slight chance mm -hmm. of ever becoming a member. Mm -hmm. I'd like it to hear your views on it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, a difficult question because uh, Turkey has been there looming in the yeah. in the horizon for, 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 for many years. <laughs> uh, I think for the time being, what I would say is that more or less everyone is happy with the kind of status quo we have, is that we still keep this commitment that one day Turkey could become a member, uh, but that for the time being it's not possible. And Turkey on its side, uh, it's rather happy to have this commitment, this political commitment there, because I think it's important for their own credibility. But they're very happy with the current situation because uh, the whole process of... Um, uh, uh, accession alignment on the European legislation has reinforced um, the Turkish economy and it has been very helpful for Erdogan in the last years uh, to bring up uh, the uh, uh, Turkish economy, uh, the business sector, everything to a level of strong competition with uh, the outside world. Uh, so that has been rather useful. Uh, now, for the time being, because of the many um, contentious issues we have with uh, Turkey, I don't see uh, any prospect, uh, at least for the moment, of any accession. Yeah. I think the only point Erdogan, President Erdogan, would like to push forward is to improve uh, the current uh, situation of the customs union. Mm -hmm. He would like to improve the deal we've passed with uh, with Turkey about uh, 15 years ago right. and would like to have better uh, provisions, improved uh, arrangements with the customs union. This, I think we should go along with, but at the moment, uh, the 28 member states have not been uh, in agreement between themselves mm -hmm. to start that negotiation precisely because of the political situation in in Turkey, yeah. the whole issue about human rights, uh, about imprisonment, etc. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. I mean, I mean the setbacks, if you go back five, six years ago, you know, mm -hmm. he championed reforms mm -hmm. and were, were um, social, economics, certainly political, mm -hmm. and then everything has been reversed. Mm -hmm. And now mm -hmm. Turkey is experiencing also terrible economic problems mm -hmm. on top mm -hmm. of everything else. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I initially was sound categorical about, I don't think there is any prospect. No. Maintaining, maintaining the so-called in something in the future is good. I, I agree with you 100%. Erdogan, I don't believe that Erdogan is interested in EU membership mm -hmm. because he will have to re restore all the reforms, human rights, freedom of press. I mean, he's got 200 journalists in jail right now. Mm -hmm. So he's not interested. And he also trying to push his Islamic agenda, which is totally inconsistent mm -hmm. with the EU, uh, you know, mm -hmm. political mm -hmm. and, and, and social culture. That's mm -hmm. not going to happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why I feel... No, but you may, be, you may be right that in the end there will never be a, a Turkish accession. Uh, 
but it seems to me that this may be linked to the whole overall evolution of the European Union as such, and that maybe the European uh, Union will morph into something that will be somewhat different from what it is today. In other words, we may find ourselves as times go by and some countries are ready to go into uh, uh, enhanced integration while others are not exactly on the same line, that we will start to see a more flexible Europe with a, a first group of countries ready to go for more political, economic, even social integration, and others that will prefer to say to stay in a sort of second circle, uh, and maybe even in a third circle, I don't know. And it is um, maybe there that you will see some kind of uh, alignment of uh, Turkey with maybe one of these two or three circles, and maybe all things will shape in a different way. It won't be any more um, a question of whether you uh, become a member of the uh, whole European Union or maybe you become a member of only part of the European Union. And this may be the case for Turkey as it may be for other candidates. It may be the case also tomorrow for Ukraine or for Georgia for many reasons. One of them we alluded to a, a few minutes ago um, would be also the way Russia is looking at all these evolutions yes, and the yes. need to take into account Russian concern. Mm -hmm. So going back, given that this is Russian concern, uh, going back to Serbia, um, now, in, based on what I know, I think that Russia is going to fight uh, uh, to, to try to resist or to, to prevent, uh, specifically Serbia of all the Balkans, not to join the not to join the EU. Do you think the the of course there is also the Serbia problem with Kosovo, which has not been settled down, and the EU would like to have that been settled before they seriously consider. Uh, Serbia's accession to the EU. This is one problem. Of course, the other problem is Russia itself. Well, do, you, do you feel that, that at any point in time, actually, uh, Serbia will have a reasonable prospect of accession as long as Russia continues to oppose that? Um, I think we have to face this dilemma more and more in the European Union. It's on one side, um, we shouldn't be under the veto, any kind of Russian veto. Uh, of course not. Um, and, uh, and I think even Russia wouldn't dare to say so publicly that they are against uh, uh, Serbia uh, accession. Uh, but at the other side, we need to look at the geopolitical reality of, of Europe in a, in a more realistic way that we have done before. I think one of the reasons why uh, we have been facing this whole issue of the confrontation uh, between Ukraine and Russia was precisely because the European Union went maybe to some extent too far or too quickly uh, with the association agreement with Ukraine and that we should have found ways of alleviating the concerns of the Russian leadership and explaining to them what we were doing and maybe looking all together with Russia and others about the kind of uh, economic cooperation 
even more so uh, security cooperation between all the different parts of the European continent mm -hmm. uh, to look at this from a regional perspective. Um, and because one of the um, major concerns, I guess, of Russia with regard to the European Union is if we go on enlarging and having new member states moving in, we'll show once more that the European model of uh, economic assistance, of economic uh, development, works much better than the Russian model. If you look at uh, Poland and Ukraine before Polish accession to the European Union, Poland and Ukraine had more or less the same level of prosperity, the same mm. level of GDP. Um, ten years uh, after Polish accession, the difference is from one to seven. Uh, that's the result of Polish accession to the European Union. This is the real challenge for Russia uh, when it wants to convince uh, uh, Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, uh, uh, Belarus uh, to stay inside the it's influence a, zone of, 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 of Russia. Uh, but uh, do, you, don't you, do you feel that, uh, I mean, my sense is that Putin, not Russia per se, but Putin, because we don't know who is going to follow Putin, is, is a star, trying to revive elements of the Soviet Union that is other than concern over how fast Europeans moving to Russian shores, so to speak, that he not only he wants to stop that, but he wants to reinstate, uh, reconstitute elements of the Soviet sphere of influence. It it could be. It's very difficult to say. I think I think his main purpose was to be seen and perceived once again as a major global power, mm -hmm. uh, not only in Europe, but all over oh, the Middle East and yeah. probably in other parts of the world. His most recent uh, outreach to Venezuela for me is quite interesting, mm -hmm. uh, all the more so as I'm not so sure Russia has enough financial resources to take care of uh, all those countries who are left behind, like Venezuela, Nicaragua or others. But let's put this aside. With regard to Europe as such, I agree with you that I think he still wants to keep some uh, uh, sphere of influence, zone of influence around uh, around Russia, mm -hmm. uh, with the fear that if he doesn't do that, he would be progressively encircled uh, by um, Europe and the free market um, uh, countries um, uh, that he wants to push back as, as much as possible. Uh, so the risk there is uh, that if we are not able to reach out to Putin and to try to find some sort of common ground, uh, the confrontation that we have witnessed in Ukraine and even recently uh, in the uh, uh, Sea of Azov, um, this kind of confrontation will come out more and more. Mm -hmm. um, so we, I think if we want to have a, a strong uh, and uh, imaginative and innovative diplomacy with regard to, uh, to Russia, we have to take Russian concern into consideration, yeah. not to abide by it. This is not what I'm saying. No, no, but no. we shouldn't be naive and think we can move forward without any problem. Yeah. There is a problem with Russia, yeah. no doubt about it, and we need to face it and to try to find the the right answer to that challenge that it, that is about how to uh, alleviate uh, Russian concerns. Mm. 
Yeah, I absolutely agree. And uh, do you think, and um, you know, coming from the background of conflict resolution, in my mind right now, as I see the recent development with the Russian seizure of Ukraine ships and all of that, when that shouldn't that provide some opening along the line of what you're saying? Not only deal with this issue, but take it further and open an open-ended dialogue with Russia <clears throat> and perhaps France or Germany who come in the leading European Union should begin that kind of process, especially given that you cannot rely on this president here to really take any significant... I mean, he, he can't. Mm -hmm. I mean, comes January, mm -hmm. he's going to be almost a lame duck mm -hmm. because he's going to be constantly under pressure mm -hmm. from Congress. But mm -hmm. do you think that conflict currently now between the Ukraine and Russia might provide that opening that you're just talking about? It, it, let's hope it could. I think the problem of the um, of the relationship between the European Union and, and Russia has been one of missed opportunities. Um, in in yes. the beginning of the uh, of the of, of two thousand and the years that followed, there was a window of opportunity to try to develop with Russia. Uh, a whole new ideas about what I would call a new architecture for the European continent from the point of view of security, of economic development and, and prosperity. Uh, there was a real possibility to do that. And maybe uh, Europe missed uh, yeah. the point. Uh, Russia maybe also on its part. But Russia came up with some interesting, well, interesting, uh, their own proposals that yeah. were not acceptable yeah. to us. Yeah. But rather than, rather than being dismissive as we were at the time, rather listen to them and try to see how we could work together would have been much preferable to the position we took. Yeah. Uh, we have to recreate that kind of opportunity with Russia, in my yeah. opinion. And to start uh, some sort of dialogue with them, uh, taking into account the whole European region and to see how we could work yeah. together. Yeah. I recognize it's very difficult to do at the moment because of the Ukrainian crisis, uh, because of the sanctions we have taken with them. So how to reinitiate a dialogue with Russia, a real geopolitical dialogue, uh, may be difficult. But I think this is really what the Europeans should start thinking about. Yeah, mm -hmm. I really, I mean, because what Russia is going to be there, mm -hmm. the European Union is going to be there, mm -hmm. and I think given the tense situation right now, it's mm -hmm. possibly, the, it's a, as a matter of fact, it might be an opportunity mm -hmm. to say, well, mm -hmm. listen, this problem is going to fester. Mm -hmm. let's, talk, let's, deal with, let's deal with it now and then mm -hmm. take it into the next step, the next step. Mm -hmm. You see, as I see it, of course, Putin feel emboldened by this president here. You're right. Mm -hmm. This is the problem. And right now, mm -hmm. he's not doesn't have the incentive mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. sit down, actually, and start serious, mm -hmm. serious negotiation with you. But... But in the, in the final analysis, <clears throat> the sanctions are biting. Mm -hmm. uh, the economy in, in, in mm -hmm. Russia is is not doing great at all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so he still might have that kind of incentive to still mm -hmm. say, that, let's solve these problems. I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> mm -hmm. I mean, one country uh, in a back channel of sort to begin that kind of process. Yeah, it could be. I still think if we, uh, if the Europeans could find a uh, the beginning of a solution on Ukraine, uh, that would be very helpful. Yeah. Uh, 
we have as as all too often started a process in ukraine and we just now have sit back and and let the process go along without much result we mm. should bring back some momentum into that process uh, and try to find ways of moving out of the kind of deadlock where we are at the moment especially especially mm -hmm. might say given the position of trump who might find that might find European intervention mm. more palatable yeah. than he himself going against Trump. Would right. you say that? I guess, I guess we have to wait for, uh, first of all, for the next presidential election in Ukraine. But with a new Ukrainian president, whoever it will be, whether it will be uh, Poroshenko being renewed or another one, uh, we will have maybe there a bit new energy on which we could try to rebound and, and build um, a new stage for that dialogue and for this um, peace process uh, there. And if we manage to do that, it could open the way for right. more, um, a sort of incremental process with, uh, with Russia, where we could start really a new, a new dialogue with them. It may sound, once again, very unrealistic at the moment, uh, but for me, it's uh, it's a sort of uh, obligation if we want to. No, if, I, I, if I agree with to. you. It's not unrealistic. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really ought to be done. Mm -hmm. I mean, if there's any any implications that may be negative is the fact that, say, are we as European Union negotiating from a position of weakness? Uh, why should we take the initiative mm -hmm. when, in fact, uh, it was Russia that committed this transgression? And uh, mm -hmm. Russia ought to begin to... Mm -hmm. You know, improve mm -hmm. the, the relationship first. Mm -hmm. But but I think well, you're a diplomat. You know better than anybody else. There's mm -hmm. so many different channels mm -hmm. that you mm -hmm. can go around about no, to, to begin some kind of dialogue. Yeah. It doesn't have to be formal to begin mm -hmm. with. No, no, yeah, no, absolutely. And the reality is that if we don't do that all together, every uh, European member states will go on its own, and they're already doing that. You yeah. know, they're all visiting on yeah. a bilateral basis. Yeah. Yeah. They're all visiting Moscow, and of yeah. course, Putin is playing with that yeah. uh, oh, yeah. and creating oh, yeah. divisions among yeah. among the Europeans. Yeah. So we better get a un united position and try to uh, to bring this new dialogue again right. into into motion. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, now we solve the problem of the Ukraine <laughs> of Russia. <laughs> <laughs> we can go to, to we the can Middle East. To the <laughs> <laughs> Easy. <laughs> no, I really, really appreciate your take on this uh, very much. Very much. So. I know you've been a uh, veteran uh, diplomat in the Middle East uh, as well, you know, as well. You're all over, and you do an amazing thing. <laughs> but as far as the Middle East goes, um, I just want to talk to you about the, the current few conflicts. And let me begin with the, with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Well, you know, many people are starting to resign now themselves to the fact that there will be no two-state solution. And the only out there two are possible out other outcome, one-state solution, which in my view is totally unacceptable, will never be accepted by Israel. Or the other one is maintaining the status quo, which is explosive. It's a question only of when. Let me begin with this premise. Do you A, agree with this premise yeah, and take it from there? No, no, I totally agree with you. I, I, I recognize, um, as, as I think you, you do yourself, that the two-state solution 
has more or less backtracked in recent years. Uh, uh, and that the, the sort of gridlock where we are at the moment hasn't helped, of course. So a lot of people are telling us time and again, um, uh, this, the two-state solution has become totally unrealistic. Nobody trusts and, or believes in it anymore. So let's uh, put it aside and start thinking about something else. Uh, but what I've always found out uh, discussing this whole peace process is that whatever other solution is being put on the table has at least as many um, problems as the two-state solution I today. So why not stick to the two-state mm -hmm. solution, even if I agree for the time being there is not much prospect of, uh, of uh, this being delivered soon, but I think we should keep it as the final goal and try it from there to start exactly as we were saying before, to start moving in that direction with small steps if possible uh, and with a bit of uh, political goodwill on both sides, which is, I fear, what is missing the most at yeah. the moment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, my take on it, and going in addition to that, and you're absolutely, you're absolutely right, is that, uh, and I've been singing the song, I feel I keep singing the same song. <laughs> but I, because I still believe the tune of the song still resonates with me a lot more than anything else. <laughs> and that is um, current leadership, in my view, be that Netanyahu Abbas, are not and will not make the kind of concession necessary to make peace. That's, I begin with that point. Mm -hmm. The second thing, going to your point, we need, and you remember we're talking about process of reconciliation. Finally, finally, you know, former Secretary of State uh, Kerry, uh, Dennis Ross, and many others who have been involved in this negotiation were saying, we made a terrible mistake. We were sitting and negotiating and negotiating, but the street remained the same thing. The, the hatred, the animosity the, the, mm -hmm. between the two sides did not change. And if we came up with a solution even, mm -hmm. How will the two sides accept it if the, if the concession has, has to be so so considerable that people are not ready to make that kind of concession? That the process of reconciliation, so to speak, was missing all along, which has to precede mm -hmm. any serious uh, mm -hmm. peace talk. Mm -hmm. uh, but the third point, I feel that the commitment to commitment to really reach an agreement was never there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I'm prepared to go back mm -hmm, 15, 20 years, even in Camp David. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, they came very close, 2008 and 9, they came very close, mm -hmm. 2013, 14. Then what happened? Why it has not been completed? Mm -hmm. I don't think that commitment, I mean, mm -hmm. do you agree? I mean, that's really what I hear your, your mm -hmm, take on it. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. if I am committed to do mm -hmm. something, 100%, you and I agree, we're going to have to cross the street, no matter how horrible the traffic is, no matter how difficult it is, no matter mm -hmm. how is the weather, we will find a way to cross the street. That kind of commitment to reach an agreement mm -hmm. was never there, in my view. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which, hence, there no significant efforts were made to prepare the ground 
for the inevitable, mm-hmm. which is it's got to be a, a, a solution. Mm-hmm. And as long as that commitment did not exist, mm-hmm. means and avenues were never exhausted mm-hmm. to reach an agreement. Mm-hmm. Now, I would agree with you. I would start from maybe a different point, um, uh, but I come to the same conclusion. My point is that both sides have, after a while, felt very comfortable with the status quo. Uh, uh, be it the Israeli side, Uh, with this idea that we have this uh, occupying power status um, with which we can take a lot of, um, from which we can take a lot of benefits, um, extending settlements, um, uh, creating a, a de facto situation, a fait accompli, as we say in France, which is uh, very comfortable with for us. Uh, at some point there was maybe some security problem, uh, but we have faced it, we have overcome that, and we control the situation. Uh, And on the other side, I sense that to some extent the Palestinian Authority is rather comfortable with the the current status quo also, uh, because uh, they have this ruling over a very small part of the territory, Ramallah and a few other parts. consider the self as a de facto state which has a status of observer in the UN, can play with it. Um, And because of all the divisions inside and the different factions inside the Palestinian Authority, rather than trying to overcome and find some unity, they prefer to stay there. So I don't feel that is there is any eagerness on either side um, to move away from, from, from the present situation. But the question is, is it sustainable? Exactly. <clears throat> That's my, my, my concern. Mm-hmm. That is, mm-hmm. there are currently, there's no motivation, mm-hmm. certainly mm-hmm. not in Israel. And among the Palestinian, the division you talked about is absolutely valid. Mm-hmm. Not within just Hamas and the Palestinian Can, Authority, but within the Palestinian Authority. Exactly. And exactly. within Hamas, they have grouping mm-hmm. and subgrouping, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they have never and I think that was the plight of the Palestinian mm-hmm, people. Mm-hmm. There was really a never unity of purpose. Mm-hmm. Let's get together, let's sit mm-hmm, up. And mm-hmm. then of course they fell so terribly behind by instead of focusing on building, building the foundation of statehood. Mm-hmm, they were o- occupied by mm-hmm. trying to push Israel out. And, mm-hmm. and it's still the case to a great extent, especially mm-hmm, say in Gaza mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. elsewhere. So they have been playing into the Israeli hands all mm-hmm. of these years mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. did never change their narrative, never mm-hmm. change their approach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the current situation cannot be sustained. Once Abbas is going to go in one form or another, mm-hmm. Netanyahu is going to go. There is no such visible, strong Israeli leader that mm-hmm. can come to the fore and say, let's solve. In fact, all these Israeli really opposition parties never even talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you are so right in suggesting mm-hmm. the status quo, happy, they're happy with the current situation. Mm-hmm. But it is, I think it's, it is explosive. At mm-hmm. one point or another, it's going mm-hmm. to explode mm-hmm. because it's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you agree with that? I, w- I would agree, but I'm, I'm quite in, struck and somewhat interested by, by the kind of uh, narrative I detect in what the current U.S. administration is trying to do, this so-called uh, peace the, plan yeah. of the century that's yeah. going to come out. Because what I can gather, what I have gathered so far from, from bits and pieces we hear about that plan, is that there is 
a sort of, of gamble on the next generation of Palestinians and Israeli who uh, um, will not be interested anymore in this pursuit for this political goal of, a, of two states or a Palestinian state, but will be much more interested in in the relative uh, situation of economic prosperity and, and looking for a better living. And therefore, these people will be ready, the next generation will be ready uh, to uh, leave aside um, the prospect of, um, of uh, a full-fledged Palestinian state in favor of economic prosperity, which I think is at the, at the heart of, of what uh, Jared Kushner and Mr. Greenblatt are looking for. Uh, can this work? I, I think I doubt it personally, and I think okay. you would doubt it no, also. No, I agree with you. Uh, I, but I but you. I think it's interesting that they're trying that way because it's maybe another way of looking at the whole issue. I personally think that the Palestinian cause has become too much of a of a political uh, goal that uh, you just can't let aside. I, I, uh, I absolutely agree with you. I think economic development mm -hmm. can be used only as a means by which to eventually get mm -hmm. to the mm -hmm. ultimate agreement, a mm -hmm. two-state solution of sorts. Mm -hmm. But it cannot be in and of itself mm -hmm. the ultimate objective. Uh, national movement, historically speaking, you, you can correct me on that, I'm sure, mm -hmm. uh, not in such as the Palestinian national movement, and never subsided and died, mm -hmm. only because they have uh, now uh, attained a better economic conditions. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, they like that, but they don't give up the hope and the dream yeah. of, of having independence. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, when I go to the West Bank, I hear this so time and again and again and again, mm -hmm. you know, we may be doing make, making living, but our our hope and expectation is somewhere along mm -hmm. the line. Mm -hmm. And they understand Abbas is pretty much mm -hmm. useless. Mm -hmm. Netanyahu is hardcore, waiting mm -hmm. for him to either leave or indicted mm -hmm. or go to prison, hopefully, <laughs> as, as some of his predecessors. <laughs> and that's that's the problem with the Israelis. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it, it, the, I think it's a sad, sad commentary on both Israelis and the Palestinians to get to this point mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. thinking they are sitting on something that can be held on to and sustained mm -hmm. when in fact it doesn't really have strong no. legs to stand on no. in the long term. No, I, I agree and I think we should be careful. Um, uh, um, we diplomats tend to live in a bubble and think that the situation can go on. But when you go uh, on the ground and, and watch what's going on, I'm not even talking about Gaza, because Gaza oh, is, uh, awful. Is, is, is awful. Uh, but the, uh, the West Bank, uh, there is a lot of um, frustration, uh, uh, resignation, uh, trafficking of all sorts taking place, which means that for me this place is very unstable and risk uh, an explosion at all moments. I think and so. this uh, sort of um, of, um, uh, of ongoing um, uh, hubris on the Israeli side that uh, through security they control everything and that no bad surprise can occur mm -hmm. seems to me a, a bit of a short, uh, short uh, sight. Very, very, very mm -hmm. short sight, mm -hmm. especially mm -hmm. given 
given the conditions in the Middle East altogether, mm -hmm. which, uh, uh, you know, situation in Lebanon with Hezbollah, the situation with Iran, mm -hmm. which take me now, let's go to Syria, have a little, <laughs> take a ride to Syria for that. <laughs> 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 uh, well, Syria created a new, a new, a completely new dimension to various conflicts. I mean, uh, I, I think there's, there's some kind of connection of sort, obviously, between all of these conflicts. You know, and the, the solutions of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict could eventually impact on Israeli-Iranian relationships, so to speak. But let's go back and uh, your take on Syria. It's very important. What, what is your take? And uh, given that now people talk about coming very close to the ending of the civil war, uh, there's a question still in the city of Idlib, is still pending, we don't know what's going to happen. We know that Russia is entrenched to the, to the hilt, uh, Iran does not want to leave, uh, Israel is uh, locked horn with, with Iran as far as Syria goes, and on, and on. Where, where do you go with this? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I know myself where <laughs> we're going. I, I would say two things on the um, on the military uh, side of the of the problem. It's true that we're witnessing a new stage in in the conflict, where uh, Syria, supported by Russia, Iran, and Hezbollah, has gained ground and is moving uh, um, in w towards uh, an increased control of the whole Syrian territory. Um, but I would put immediately a caveat there, is that I'm quite struck by the fact that in, large, in many parts of the, um, of the country where the Syrian National Army has managed to get in with the support of Russia and others and is regaining control, there is still fighting going on. Um, yes. uh, they don't get rid of those opposition armed groups. Even Daesh, um, ISIS, um, has not totally disappeared. It's not anymore uh, the, uh, uh, the sort of structured organization that was in charge of a large part of, the eastern, um, of eastern Syria, but it's still there. It's still fighting. Mm -hmm. So what we are witnessing is maybe a situation where um, the... Um, high intensity um, conflict is slowly moving out of the picture uh, but something different may be appearing which will still be a conflict low intensity um, uh, terrorist attacks whatever i'm not sure that we're back to a full-fledged military security and stability as uh, damascus may be expecting and i, I agree 100 percent. that's yeah. that's one point the second point is that maybe because of that military situation, I don't see any political solution near. Um, not only because the opposition will go on fighting as long as they can, and because the political and economic reality in many parts of the country now is made of uh, um, warlords a little bit everywhere who are playing their own game, but also because in Damascus, I don't, I don't think that in any way Bashar al-Assad is ready to give up any of, his, um, any of his power. And when we are all expecting, with the help of the UN, that we're going to be able to um, set up a constitutional committee that will draft a new constitution, 
I personally think uh, that uh, Bashar al-Assad doesn't want any of this to happen and that as far as one can see, neither Russia nor Iran have the necessary leverage to impose this upon him, if only they were willing to do so, which I am not sure. So I unfortunately think that we may be facing the kind of situation um, we are have now in Syria going on on and on for a while, um, which brings about the whole question of what should the West do yeah. in those conditions, <laughs> so, uh, which is not easy. Yeah, so, so I mean, what, the way along the line of what you're saying, you really have the internal combustion that is still going on mm -hmm. and will continue to go on. The mm -hmm. population is segmented, you have different mm -hmm. groups. Shia, Sunni, mm -hmm. Christians, mm -hmm. Kurds, and so forth, mm -hmm. and each have their own particular interests and want to guard it mm -hmm. at all costs. Mm -hmm. And then you have external players like Russia, Iran, of course Saudi Arabia indirectly, Israel is, is there, American is there. That's another layer. So to satisfy all of these players, to find a solution that can meet <laughs> and satisfy all these players, to me it is practically almost impossible. So the dynamics, do you agree that the dynamics inside Syria ought first to be changed before you can get all this better than a dozen significant players inside and outside the country ought to come up to some kind of consensus with which they can live? Do you see that happening? No, because first of all, I very much agree uh, with you that um, the um, internal dynamic is still very much there. And if you look, for instance, back at... Uh, the uh, unfortunate experience of Lebanon in the 70s and the 80s, it was the regional uh, actors that at some point were able to come in. Saudi Arabia, uh, if only to name one of these regional actors, who at some point understood that time was ripe to step into Lebanon and to convince the different parties uh, to stop fighting each other because there was a lot of uh, war fatigue between yeah. all of them at some point. I'm not sure we have reached that point yet in, uh, in, uh, in Syria. Uh, and secondly, unfortunately, uh, the main regional actors are fighting each other by proxy uh, through Syria. Syria absolutely. Uh, so yeah. it seems to me that um, I don't expect neither Russia nor the United States nor the UN nor the Western countries to be able to impose a solution uh, because they're not part of that region and it never works when you come from outside. Um, I think it's for the, uh, the actors in the region at the end of the day to be able to find a solution and I think that at the moment because they're fighting at each other, uh, we haven't yet a solution there for the time being, unfortunately. Yeah, definitely. I mean, when you think in terms of political solution in particular, or what sort of, uh, you know, we, we go always to these countries like um, cowboys with two guns ready to go. We have a system you ought to emulate. We have a democratic form of government. Mm -hmm. Just follow that, go to election. <laughs> <laughs> and everything is going to be fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was never fine mm -hmm. anywhere in the Arab world so far. And they're going to be fine in Syria, <laughs> specifically in Syria. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's uh, I mean, it's a sad, 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 sad commentary that mm -hmm. after nearly 600,000 people died, mm -hmm. half the country refugees are internally mm -hmm. displaced. The only, the only glimmer of hope I, or optimism I have with Syria is that 
uh, under this fractured um under the surface of this fractured country today, it seems that at the local level uh, there is something appearing of uh, of new local powers here or there um, that could be interesting to watch and to support to some extent. Um, of course, the risk is that you, if you support some of those local uh, authorities that are emerging there, you you go even further in the fragmentation of of of, of the country. Uh, but maybe with uh, uh, the necessary degree of control and self-control, you could start f seeing or emerging um, a, a more decentralized uh, Libya that could help. In Syria. Uh, yeah. The Syria, sorry, yeah. that could help uh, set up a new type of government in due course. Yeah. But that's going to take a while. It take a while. That's going to take. But a it would long be while. rather than the top-down approach. It yeah. would be a bottom-up. Bottom up. You're going to need a bottom-up. Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. absolutely mm -hmm. agree. Mm -hmm. That is probably the only thing that will save will save Syria mm -hmm. uh, from. Mm -hmm. But but this is, in, in my view, it's a, in the years uh, right. ahead. You're it's right. not going to happen anytime right. soon. So I want to. I want to move to to, <laughs> to Yemen. Uh, that is another uh, heart wrenching tragedy. I I wrote so much about it, and every time I write about it, I really I, I want to cry, and I, I really mean it. I feel, especially when it comes to kids, when you talk, when you hear about a million kids mm -hmm. in. Infected by cholera, mm -hmm. tens of thousands, uh, hundreds, of thousands are dying from starvation, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then we, the United States, continue to support the Saudis, mm -hmm. uh, providing them with the munition they need, all the big, providing them with the killing machine. Mm -hmm. And uh, recently, I wrote a piece about you know, uh, as a consequence of the killing and the dismemberment of uh, Khashoggi. Khashoggi. Shouldn't that provide us with some opening? Mm -hmm. uh, well, you know that what's going on now with the Senate, you know, with the hearing, you know, what happened, I, you, know, you know, you know this better than anyone else. Uh, to what extent you feel, and, and given, of course, this, the madness of this president, who is, uh, who is so, uh, I mean, you know, for him, who cares, Khashoggi, no Khashoggi, we want to sell them arms, we want to buy this, and, <laughs> and thank you, Saudi Arabia. Can you imagine, I mean, I, I get the chills when mm -hmm. I hear something like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. But given this situation here, and now the revelation, as of yesterday, when the when the director of the CIA, uh, you know, um, what do you do to, to bring an end to this horrifying, horrifying war that, that no one is going to absolutely, I think in the end of the day, nobody is going to come victorious at all. That's going to be has to end somehow, and everybody going back to their way where they were before. That's how I see it. Mm -hmm. No, I I, I I totally agree with your description of uh, of the situation there. Um, if if I take up your your question about what can we do and how to move forward, um, I would take up the point you made about the humanitarian situation. At least let's try to um, uh, to bring some. Uh, some positive moves with regard to the humanitarian situation. 
in other words, get from both sides an agreement that allows humanitarian assistance to get in, a free flow of humanitarian support, uh, at least for the six months ahead, to try to alleviate some of the uh, difficulties um, uh, the population is, is facing. Um, even that, so far, has been impossible to, uh, to reach. Yeah. Um, because both sides are so uh, hooked on this idea that they're not going to let any, any opening uh, happen um, with their current infighting. Um, this, uh, this has made any humanitarian breakthrough uh, impossible. So I think we should take, we should size this opportunity of uh, the Congress being maybe more aggressive in the yes. next few months yeah. on this, um, but also putting pressure on some of the Western countries, uh, my own country, um, Britain, um, which so far have been very supportive of the Saudi uh, offensive yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the Emirati offensive, uh, to try to make them change their, their position. Personally, I expect more maybe from the Emiratis who seem now to um, um You mean wobble. talking specifically about Abu Dhabi? I mean uh, the, the United Arab Emirates. The, yes. uh, the Emirates, exactly, mm -hmm. who, um, who seem to wobble a little bit now mm -hmm. with the Yemen, with their, with their uh, Yemen implication. Um, I'm less convinced that on the Saudi side, the crown prince is, uh, is ready to, to be more flexible than he has been uh, before. At least we have now this uh, conversation starting in Stockholm. Let's see how it goes. But if at least it could come out, could come out with one agreement on humanitarian assistance, that would be a, a, first, uh, a first step, um, I think. Uh, one additional observation. Um, the Europeans, at least the, the, the three Europeans who are part of the Iranian nuclear deal, uh, plus Italy, have, as you know, started a political dialogue with Iran. And one of the few issues on which they had perceived a little bit of flexibility from Iran was precisely Yemen. Yes. Um, yes. And I think we should try to make the best out of this. I don't think, contrary to what I hear from my former colleagues in the State Department or other circles in Washington, that Iran is totally um, uh, invested in supporting the Houthis against uh, Saudi Arabia. I'm not so sure about I that. Ag I agree with of you. Course, I agree of course, they're with using you. that opportunity <laughs> well, of course, against Saudi because Arabia. They're also, mm -hmm. they're also not profusely bleeding, mm -hmm. but they don't see they don't see an outcome mm -hmm. where they can emerge really with any significant durable gain. They, they don't, I, that's how I see it. Mm -hmm. I don't think mm -hmm. they see that. They mm -hmm. see that this is a war. It's consuming a lot of resources. Mm -hmm. They are under tremendous pressure. There's mm -hmm. renewed sanctions and all of that. Mm -hmm. and, and then there's, of course, the Iran deal. And so a solution to the Yemen, I, I like your, your view on it, mm -hmm. solution to the Yemen from the Iranian perspective, and perhaps mm -hmm. this is the reason why they're showing a little bit more flexibility about mm -hmm. Yemen, mm -hmm. is to try also, if there is a solution there, could open or pave the way, at least provide small opening mm -hmm. to dealing with a larger regional issue, particularly mm -hmm. concerning 
the conflict between the United States, Israel, and Iran. Yeah. Would you would you think that? The It seems to me that um, the only solution to the current confrontation between Saudi Arabia and Iran, which is growing by the day, yeah. I mean, they're getting more and more aggressive one against each other. It's, it's, it's not to think about some sort of regional security pact. Of course, it would be great, but we're too far away from No, this. I'm talking about... It's talking about small Saudi steps. Saudi Arabia, yeah, mm -hmm. Saudi Arabia and Iran, I think, mm -hmm. ending that war exactly. could provide opening. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. That's I don't exactly think it can no, go no. over... But that's my point. I think yeah. you're absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. Is that by going by a step-by-step -step yes. approach yeah. that we can start... You know, it's what we usually call confidence-building measures. Yes, uh, yes, And yes. there's so... There's, The total lack of confidence at the moment. Right. So it's about re restarting a process yeah. that will slowly build confidence again between all these different uh, d different nations. Uh, and you have to start somewhere. Why not start with Yemen? With the Yemen also, mm -hmm. and then within mm -hmm. that, exactly what you said, starting with Yemen, but the first step is to begin with humanitarian Terrier. steps mm -hmm. in order to alleviate the horrifying mm -hmm. uh, you know, conditions mm -hmm. that exist right now in mm -hmm. Yemen. And I think, I think um, both Iran and, and Saudi Arabia may be open mm -hmm. to this now that, now that the Crown of Prince under this kind of pressure, mm -hmm. if Congress is going to pass most likely a resolution, mm -hmm. they, have, they have a veto proof. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. consensus now mm -hmm. that uh, they may pass it today or tomorrow mm -hmm. that compel the president to stop supplying the kind of weapons that Saudis need that's going to also send a clear picture but mm -hmm. I feel very strongly concurrently with that mm -hmm. I would have liked to see delegation mm -hmm. going immediately to Saudi Arabia and say mm -hmm. look you have made a horrible mistake mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. is not going to go away so easy mm -hmm. but try to show some signs humanitarian yeah. side and say mm -hmm. we're going to do this and this in Yemen we're going that is going to also improve their global you know improve their position mm -hmm. on the global mm -hmm. stage because of the mm -hmm. Kosoki I mean that see I see that that mm -hmm. Kosoki situation provided perhaps that opportunity Trinity. but mm -hmm. are we going to capitalize on it no, or no. from your perspective do you think European should do something specifically British and others France I think maybe the British would be the one who could do it I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm still um, hesitant about the ability of the European Union as such as, uh, as an entity uh, to be a real global Uh, actor at the moment it's it's more individual member states yeah. who, which have a stake in into the matter britain for instance germany to some yeah. extent france maybe one or two others these are the ones who can maybe uh, help broker a deal at, yeah. at some point uh, but europe as such is is too much divided with some of the member states still very reluctant Uh, to be seen in any way opposing President Trump. Um, so I sense that if you want to do something quickly, uh, in an urgent way, as a sort of a priority, it should be maybe one or another of the member states uh, in Europe that could try that. Britain has been trying that, as you know, right now at the moment in the UN Security Council. Uh, France has never been very active in Yemen. 
uh, they sell arms uh, to Saudi Arabia. Uh, at some point, they have tried to be part of a small informal group of diplomats from different European countries and non-European countries who tried in the past to broker a peace deal uh, between uh, the Yemeni government and the Houthi, uh, but uh, it didn't go very far. I, I'm, I'm more um, uh, trustful to some extent of a country like Oman as the one who could come back into the game and, and play a useful role of, uh, of honest broker, maybe, uh, because they have good relations with Iran, uh, they can talk to Saudi Arabia, and they're maybe the ones who could help um, um, uh, bridge uh, some sort of, um, of uh, uh, go-between move yeah. or um, uh, between, between, between the different parties. Of course, you have the UN also, which is there, um, and the uh, special envoy is uh, uh, someone who knows well the region and has been uh, very uh, effective in, in the past, so this could uh, also help. Um, I think the best contribution from the European side, coming back to what I was saying earlier, is their ability to talk directly to uh, Tehran. I think, I think so. I think. And I also think, I mean, you're talking about the United Nations. Um, I mean, in this full coordination between Britain and the United States and the Security Council, I'm not sure Russian Russian don't have much say about that Yemen and situation in Yemen. Uh, there is this, this kind of, and there is a resolution, but does really the United States need a UN resolution to deal with with Saudi Arabia no. or the Britain for that matter? So, so I think I think the 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 focus should be now on directly on the Saudis mm -hmm. and give give the Crown Prince an opportunity to to put a better better face by stopping this horrible uh, you know by saying let's begin major humanitarian project to 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 deal with that end of it. Don't you think that would be? I think I think uh, this is certainly what we should do and keep on doing. Yeah. Um, uh, and I agree with you with the, uh, the 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 relative weakness at the moment of yes. the UN system. Yeah. This I agree. Um, where I have my doubts is on the attitude of the Crown Prince in Saudi Arabia. It seems to me that out of the Khashoggi affair, he has come down to some extent in by by doubling down uh, on 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 his position of, on being even stronger and and firmer in his stance to regarding uh, Yemen, regarding Iran, um, and this is where I think. Uh, um, we will need a lot of pressure to be able yeah. to do that. Unless, that is, I mm -hmm. agree with you, unless mm -hmm. the United States acts. And I think now he is also watching what the Senate is going to be doing. Yeah. And this, the, the, if the resolution passes, and it will pass, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. based on the numbers that we are mm -hmm. looking at, mm -hmm. um, that means no supplies. So there is a leverage right now. So he may be doubled down on what, thinking, you know, I'm going to do this, it's mm -hmm. my problem, my prerogative. Mm -hmm. He's mm -hmm. going to feel the pain mm -hmm. uh, sooner mm -hmm. than later. And that is, if, mm -hmm. if the Senate uh, stick to its guns mm -hmm. and, and take that kind of measure and send a clear message to him, hey, mister, mm -hmm. you better listen or else there'll be even worse consequences. Mm -hmm. Don't you think that, that 
this potentially could happen. It's true. It can work. Uh, it uh, it can work. Um, but what are the um, the levers of, uh, of 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 the Congress? It will be arms sale. Um, they have. Yeah, be, they uh, can prevent the, the the United the president from shipping any kind of ammunition. And actually, they are, for example, refueling. Mm -hmm. They can stop the president from refueling these planes. Mm -hmm. uh, the ammunition that are using, killing people, they can mm -hmm. stop that. Mm -hmm. So they can stop all of this. Basically, they can put a halt to the offensive that the Saudis have been conducting mm -hmm. for the last uh, mm -hmm. three, four mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. uh, the Senate can, can do that. And if it's a veto-proof over mm -hmm. 60, there isn't much the president can do about it. They'll have to adhere to it. Yeah. No, no, I see. Mm -hmm. So we, 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 we can only hope, of course, mm -hmm. which take us to our um, uh, easiest problem to solve, which is Iran. <laughs> Are you okay it's with it? Cherry on top of the cake. <laughs> <laughs> I know Iran you know, is absolutely. a... <laughs> oh, God. Iran is a big piece to swallow. <laughs> so I, I feel, I feel, uh, please correct me, because it's a, this is my take. There is, of course, a nuclear problem. That's a, there is Israeli play and game, you know, position on this, which is, I think, way too exaggerated than, than what the Israelis claim. Uh, I, don't be, I don't feel that Iran, even if it eventually acquires nuclear weapon is going to use it, knowing that it could be annihilated in return. I mean, I think this is all more of political posturing at part of Israel. I think the, the deeper conflict is more like Sunni-Shiite conflict today in the Middle East. And all it's Saudi Arabia and Iran trying to position themselves so in a manner so that they will be the, the anchor, the region, in a, I mean, representing the two brands of Islam. And the two countries that have a say on that specifically is Iran and Saudi Arabia. Uh, and that is the backdrop, and I, as I see it, of some of the what's going on, even in, in Syria. Needless to say, in Syria, it was also proxy war to a great extent between Iran uh, and, and, and Saudi Arabia. Um, and now there's a new sanction around the economy is hurting. Like you just said, the Europeans are trying to dealing with with Iran and fi trying to find out better ways where this all going to lead to. <laughs> Easy question. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd give you a little hard time toward the end. <laughs> no, I, I very much agree with your assessment, and I, I, I personally, for having lived in um, in 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 this region uh, at some point, I've always been struck by. Um, leaving Turkey aside, uh, the confrontation between Saudi Arabia on one hand and, and Iran on the on the uh, on the other hand was uh, was an obvious one. It was there for all to see, um, and with, in my opinion, I may be wrong, uh, real important assets on the Iranian side. A uh, strong population, larger than uh, than Saudi Arabia. Uh, three times, uh, high yeah. high quality of education mm -hmm. uh, of their young people, which means great expertise in in many issues, um, and 
and uh, a, a vibrant society uh, um, which has survived <laughs> and has remained very vibrant in spite of the regime. Yeah, to, to a great extent, remain mm -hmm. uh, Western-oriented. Yes, yes. There's no, there's no question about it, you're so absolutely uh -huh. right. Mm -hmm. I mean, they are proud people, historically speaking, mm -hmm. culturally speaking. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the numbers talk, as mm -hmm. far as they are concerned, mm -hmm. are more Shiite in the Middle East than they are Sunnis. Mm -hmm. Gulf and Jordan, including Iraq and all of that, still more Shiite mm -hmm. in that region. Mm -hmm. So from mm -hmm. their perspective, well, you know, we are the, mm -hmm. the power and we have inherent mm -hmm. right. So I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, 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 but you're absolutely right. And furthermore, if you pretend to become one of the major uh, regional powers and you look around you and you see that uh, all your neighbors uh, have the, uh, have an, uh, the, the capacity uh, the nuclear military capacity like uh, India, Pakistan and Israel on the other side, uh, you just want to have the same, uh, the, the, the same leverage. And of course, by doing that, you trigger a Saudi Arabia <laughs> reaction, uh, which wants uh, also its own nuclear military capacity. So this is the natural <laughs> road yeah. to instability, yeah. confrontation, yeah. And, and things getting more and more dangerous yeah. as, as we move along. So the whole point is, for me, twofold. Is, uh, one is, let's stop, stop talking all the time about regime change in Iran, Absolutely. because this is really what it's all about yeah, from the right. US side. Yeah. We will never be able to start any sort of dialogue if the sort of precondition is a regime change. It will go nowhere. This is why I think whatever we may think about the uh, nuclear deal with all its sort shortcoming, it was better to have Absolutely. this deal than not to have it. Absolutely. Uh, um, Absolutely. This was a first step towards something right. that could be helpful in the future. So I think at some point we have to go back to that. Uh, how can we convince uh, the present uh, US administration uh, to um, go back to a more rational uh, approach towards Iran. Uh, this I don't know, and I'm not sure we can expect anything there uh, for some time. So for the time being, we have to convince our American partners uh, that um, by going on, discussing, having this dialogue with Iran, we are moving in the right direction and that they better look at what we're trying to do. We, the Europeans, Russia, China and others, India, Japan, and that maybe they should um, slowly come back to a more rational and peaceful course with regard to Iran. Um, that, in my opinion, would help also maybe uh, to... Um, uh, support the moderates inside the regime and to be on that side of the political spectrum in Iran, con comforting those who are looking uh, for a progressive opening towards the West, so on and so forth. Now we have a major difference with, uh, and this would be my second point, we have a major difference with the US administration, is that they just don't believe in the kind of assessment we're making um, about the Iranian regime. When we're talking about the distinction between moderates and radicals, uh, they tell us uh, in uh, uh, strong words uh, that we are naive, uh, that this is one united um, uh, political uh, regime 
uh, and they are playing with us this game of moderates against radical but nothing of that kind exists in in iran no, I, I, it's, right. it's one uh, obsessed regime with uh, uh, aggressing the west and uh, refusing any kind of uh, of compromise at the end of the day once again i don't want to be naive we know about uh, some of those um, radical moves inside the regime the uh, terrorist attacks that we have been um, the victims of here and there uh, but in our opinion that should not prevent us from keeping on dialogue uh, dialogue with uh, with tehran because that would be for the benefit of all there's no no doubt i think i think the whole effort in which country at least in recent decades where we attempted a, a regime change was a successful mm-hmm. in iran itself go back to 1953 we enforced mm-hmm. We actually forced a regime change and mm-hmm. came back to haunt us mm-hmm. in 1979. Nice. <laughs> I mean, and, uh, uh-huh. I mean, regime change. I think the Obama approach to Iran was much, much more practical mm-hmm. by far. First of all, he openly said, "We are not looking for regime change." Uh, he moved on to 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 get the Iran deal done, and and the whole idea, the whole idea was is that. You have that deal exactly what you say, and from that on, you move and build on it. I mean, certainly Iran has a security concern. Forget even Israel, or forget Saudi. They have security concern from the other side. They have to deal with 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 Pakistan. They have Afghanistan. They have all of these countries, and there is no stability there. So they have. They are basically surrounded with countries mm-hmm. who are either hostile or at best. Mm-hmm. Certainly not friendly in any which way. Mm-hmm. So they have security concerns, and I think what you said is absolutely necessary. We've, we, it's a pipe dream to think that you're going to get a regime change in Iran. Mm-hmm. They seem to be holding to power very strongly. Mm-hmm. We don't sense, I don't know, you sense any internal threat to the regime. I don't. Mm-hmm. No matter who we look and add mm-hmm. and we, talk mm-hmm. them, they don't sense any uh, impending. No. And this is. Um uh, a country, a nation with a very strong nationalistic uh, streak, right. yeah. uh, because of um, of their long historical yeah. legacy of yeah. Russian interference, yeah. Yeah. Uh, British interference, mm-hmm. U.S. Uh, CIA with yeah. uh, the uh, Mossadegh, Mossadegh uh, government. government. Yeah. Yeah. So. This has been kept very much alive in their memory. Uh, When I was uh, posted in that country many years ago, uh, uh, memories of Mossadegh were coming back all the time. They were talking to me all the time about this. So I think, no, uh, there is, uh, it seems to me to be a little bit of a, of a dream pipe to think mm-hmm. that um, uh, this regime will fall easily uh, just by uh, uh, putting on it um, economic sanctions. Yeah. And, they, and I mean, the regime is not exactly ignoring the public consensus. They're mm-hmm. paying a lot of attention to mm-hmm. how the public is reacting. And as a matter of fact, because of what the United States has done under this administration, the public is is is, um, is is angry at America, not at the regime, because they feel the regime is fulfilling its obligation. It's been doing the right thing. They agreed to the agreement, and the United States came in and and revoked the whole thing. The, that's that's and that's why I don't see uh, any uh, disturbances any any in, within Iran itself because. 
they see they more they see more eye to eye with the regime mm -hmm. than they have seen before. So exactly what opposite of what Trump is trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. He think that the economic sanctions are going to cause tremendous domestic dislocation, mm -hmm. economic dislocation. It mm -hmm. does to some extent. Mm -hmm. But don't you feel that the Iranians are not, even though they may be suffering more economically, they are not prepared to take it against the regime? Um, uh, I agree with you. Um, even if I, uh, I would say social unrest has been increasing in, uh, in, uh, in Iran in recent months, even in recent years, but interestingly enough, the regime is very much aware of that. Um, uh, five years ago, you wouldn't have heard in uh, Iran the kind of statements you get from the, uh, uh, the supreme leader or from the president Rouhani about saying that they understand the social uh, uneasiness yeah. and they want to do something yeah. about it. Yeah. And I think um, it's interestingly, um, uh, it's interesting to, to hear those statements, which for me are rather new in the Iranian context, which shows that um, they are aware that something needs to be done something to alleviate done, yeah. some of yeah. those social concerns. Yeah. How far can they go amidst all these new sanctions regime? Uh, we will have to see. Uh, but contrary to the previous sanction regime, where we were all united uh, by, I mean, the international community, yeah. here you are in a situation where, as far as possible, most of the Iranian partners are trying to see how they can find a way through in spite of the U.S. sanctions Yeah, and regime. they feel encouraged. I it's mean, a, they feel yeah, that, yeah. I mean, and that's why mm -hmm. probably the, the, the mm -hmm. it's not as widespread. But I think you're absolutely right. The, the, these de demonstrations, we're not we're more not geared against the regime mm -hmm. per se. Mm -hmm. We want regime change. Yeah. No such thing. Mm -hmm. We want better conditions. Mm -hmm. Don't mm -hmm. you I mean that yeah. was a sentiment. Yeah. And nothing nobody was saying mm -hmm. regime is this or this corruption, mm -hmm. is this, mm -hmm. is that. Mm -hmm. They're mostly mm -hmm. talking about um, mm -hmm. their own, you know, economic, mostly mm -hmm. economic mm -hmm. con conditions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, but as far as, as uh, as um, uh, Iran uh, nuclear ambition, so far they have adhered, continue to adhere mm -hmm. to the Iran deal. That's mm -hmm. what we understand. Mm -hmm. The European community, community is saying they have been adhering, nothing mm -hmm. has changed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, if I take, a, you know, not a wild guess, but thinking the way the Iranians are thinking, I don't think they have any plan necessarily to withdraw from the deal at this point or any time in the near future. Because what that would do, that would be very much to their disadvantage, where now they can play Europe versus the United States. Exactly. They are mm -hmm. still dealing with, with, with Russia, they're dealing mm -hmm. with China, they're still buying their mm -hmm. oil. China is not concerned with, the, with, mm -hmm. the, with that. So they would have no real motivation to get, mm -hmm. withdraw from the deal. Mm -hmm. And uh, they have patience. There have been 4,000 years of continuing mm -hmm. historic <laughs> existence. Mm -hmm. For them, 10 years, 15 years from now, it's such a very, very short period of time. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. I agree with you. Their interest for the moment is for uh, um, certainly, uh, you know, the current situation is U.S. being isolated. Um, uh, many of the... Uh, 
uh, Iranian economic partners trying to find ways uh, to get to circumvent sanctions, um, uh, so on and so forth. Whereas if they decided to just uh, get out of the uh, nuclear deal, then I guess uh, the whole international community would have to put up, uh, set up uh, new sanctions um, that would have a universal uh, yeah. dimension, and that would be much more difficult for them. Um, so I think the, the point at the moment is certainly for them in this kind of very difficult domestic uh, balance of power between the different uh, um, uh, elements of the of the regime, um, this is more or less the the, 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 the tipping point of, yeah, uh, of that yeah. of that balance. Yeah. Uh, but um, one has to be cautious uh, because you see that still inside the regime, uh, the radical uh, faction um, seems to be going on with its um, uh, a terrorist attack against opposition in Europe. We have seen plans to um, for terrorist attacks of that sort and that is not very good of course because it forces uh, the Europeans to start looking again at the possibility at least of personal sanctions yeah, against yeah, some people yeah, of the regime yeah. so there is a risk there of um, this current attitude from the European side to slowly crumble um, in, in, in as, as, as we face uh, continuing uh, attacks from the radical part of the of the regime uh, against the Western world. Um, yeah, but I, I, I suppose, I mean, I take it that uh, Western diplomats are actually should be conveying this message that it's, you want us to stick to the sanction, to the, to stick to the deal, you better watch what you're doing. I mean, I, I suppose these messages have been conveyed to them. Uh, absolutely. To, they to, have to been the conveyed. Iran, yeah. Now we have to watch and yeah. observe very yeah. closely yeah. Uh, what will be the outcome of it. And then finally, I think one point that, that, that they may stick to the deal still for a while. I think the, what they see what what's happening here in the United States. Um, like like myself and many others hope there are, that Trump is not going to be re-elected uh, if he... Hopefully he won't last to 2020 anyway. <laughs> and that the dynamic, political dynamics is going to change if there's a new president. I think they have enough patience to wait and see what's going to happen here in the United States. <laughs> and on that note... <laughs> Optimistic of note, you would say. <laughs> I can't thank you enough for taking so no, much no, time. No. I love, you know, it I took a, a lot of time, like more than an hour and a half. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Again, so much. Thank no, you no. so much. Thank, Thank you, Alan. It was a pleasure to host both of you. Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page. And stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.